Well, uh, this has been an enjoyable uh, study, for me at least. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're, we've quite nearly wrapped it up. Uh, let's, in fact, let's turn please to Mark, the fourth chapter. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, we're so grateful for your uh, presence here with us tonight, for the word that you've given us, and for your Holy Spirit who's been sent to teach us. And we pray, Lord, tonight that uh, we would enjoy an encounter with Jesus Christ, that we would leave here tonight having encountered Jesus, having received from him and his transforming life and power more at work in us, Lord. We relax, Lord, into your hands, Lord, all of our concerns. Every need that we may have arrived here with, we release into your care, into your loving care. And turn our thoughts toward you and receive of you your peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mark, the fourth chapter, of course, uh, deals largely with the parable of the sower, a parable Jesus taught publicly and then later explained privately to his disciples. Let's begin reading that explanation with verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. I'm reading from the NASB. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty 60, and a hundredfold. I'm going to recap briefly what we, uh, uh, what we um, discussed in our last lecture, which was a couple of Thursdays ago. And I want to remind you, of course, all of these uh, lessons are online uh, at the St. Andrew's website, uh, both video and audio. In fact, if you Listen to iTunes, the podcast there, they're available there as well. And you might want to review them there. Or if, you've, uh, if you were unable to be with us during um, the beginning of uh, this series, you might want to catch up there. Last, uh, during the last lecture, we, we looked especially at Mark 4, verses 18 and 19. And there Jesus describes uh, the state, I, I think, of more than a few Christians. He, 
unlike the uh, previous two categories of heart or types of ground, the Word of God was not plucked up, nor did it wither away. It grew up and remained, however, it failed to bring forth fruit. So this absence of fruit or this fruitlessness certainly can exist in the lives of, of Christians. Well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians. And I would further suggest that there are areas of our lives, each of us here tonight, in which the Word of God may not be as fruitful or as productive as it might otherwise be. There are certainly going to be areas of our lives in which the Word of God yields fruit, and perhaps even much fruit. But there are areas in which it struggles to bring forth fruit, or we struggle in our embrace sufficiently to allow it to bring forth fruit. And I suggested there are uh, numerous reasons why this might happen. Um, but what we particularly focused on uh, ideas regarding the Word of God that are really inconsistent with the Word of God. Uh, Jesus and Paul warned us against the traditions of men and the doctrines of men. And these are notions about God, ideas about God, which again are well-intentioned, but are not consistent with the Word of Truth. And as a consequence, they can impinge upon the Word of God so that it does not bring forth fruit in our lives. And Jesus was especially, um, especially warned us against that, um, that phenomenon. And then Paul addressed it as well. In fact, Paul, Paul urged us to, to uh, uh, be aware that there are doctrines of demons. Those are really overtly um, counter to the Word of Truth. But then there are the doctrines of men. And that's much more subtle. Um, they, they're often well-intentioned, but there are ideas about God that just aren't consistent with the word of truth. And that can create a problem. Consider when Jesus arrived at his own hometown, Nazareth. He had been preaching and teaching throughout that region and working miracles. He arrived to the village, the, the town in which he had been largely raised, and we read there that he was unable to do any mighty works, save that he healed a few sick people with minor ailments, as it suggested. And why was he unable to work miracles there? Their unbelief. And what did their unbelief, uh, what was it uh, a product of? their perception of Jesus, their ideas about Jesus. They said, hey, we know this guy. He grew up here. We know his parents. I think he used to play with my boy. He's a carpenter, the son of a carpenter. Their perception of Jesus disallowed his power from working fully in their lives. And so he set about teaching in Nazareth to overcome uh, those perspectives that were hindering them from receiving from God. But that can be the net effect of the doctrines of men. Ideas that are somewhere awry. They, they veer off sharply from the word of truth. 
And then there are simply areas of our lives in which there are issues, maybe pain, that hinders us from receiving from God, from allowing His uh, Word to yield fruit in our lives. Uh, and there, are, there is a remedy for that, and we're going to be examining that now as we explore verse 20. But, but uh, the net effect, though, of this, uh, 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 rather, the net effect is fruitlessness, but the chief culprit here in the worries of the world, uh, the deceitfulness of riches, essentially covetousness, and the lust of other things, they're, they're, uh, they're the effect of being distracted. These all serve as distractions from the reality that is God, the invisible God, who rules an invisible kingdom. That can be a real challenge for man to embrace that concept continually, persistently, consistently. Even believers are challenged in that arena, aren't we? I urged you to, uh, in fact, let's, let's turn there very quickly, um, to consider this from uh, the, perspectives, uh, the perspective of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Imagine, if you will, what life must have been like before the fall. The world was a perfect place. And man was far more aware of spiritual reality than physical reality. Jesus explained in John 4.24 that God is a spirit. Now we know that God is immutable and unchanging. If God is a spirit, then God has always been a spirit, and yet we read in Genesis 3 that it was the practice of God to walk with this first man and this first woman, with Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day, in the garden, walking among the trees, communing with them, and Adam and Eve communing with God. How aware uh, of spiritual reality were they? So much so that they were able to commune with God with ease. They were, as we'll discover, unaware of their own nakedness. They were not only more familiar with spiritual reality, apparently spirituality or, or um, the world of the spirit, that dimension was for them reality. It defined reality. It wasn't merely on the spectrum. It was reality. And so, following the fall, Genesis, the third chapter, uh, beginning with uh, verse 7, uh, after they partook of the forbidden fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The very first thing that uh, they became aware of was their physical state. They were naked. Now, were they naked before the fall? Sure they were, but they were unaware of it. Happily unaware of it. Now, you may be comfortable 
in your own skin. You may not be, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you may be quite immodest, <laughs> um, comfortable with your own body. But I, I rather doubt, e- even, e- even then, that you would be unaware that you were unclothed if you were in fact naked. But they were. But instantly, they became far more aware of uh, the physical world in which they lived. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What desperation drove them to that? It must have, uh, it's very difficult, I think, for us to comprehend just how uh, extraordinarily devastating this event must have been for them. In fact, I wonder if there was not some special dispensation of grace that was granted them simply to, to maintain the will to survive. The world was a very different place following the fall. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So I say that simply to remind you that that was the environment in which you and I were created to to live and to thrive. A world in which spiritual reality largely defined reality. Now for us here, uh, we have to allow um, reality to occupy a larger spectrum. Certainly we're aware of the physical world around us, aren't we? but it extends well beyond um, the edges of our senses. It extends beyond what our senses are able to confirm. And in fact, for the spiritual man, there is a comprehension that what we see and experience in this physical world is largely a reflection and a reaction to what is occurring in uh Uh, that additional reality in the world of the Spirit, and that through prayer we can influence and impact what happens in this physical world. Uh, I quoted Pierre uh, Deschardins. He was a French Jesuit priest, philosopher, and a paleontologist. I quoted him last week, and I don't agree uh, uh, with uh, perhaps a, a great deal of his his uh, thoughts, uh, though certainly some of them, but this, I thought, was a profound observation he made. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience, he wrote. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And he's captured, I think, uh, so well, the nature of man. That we are, first and foremost, spiritual beings. After all, should, uh, should the coming of Christ tarry, we will all die. It's cheerful news. So uh, when I die, my body will be laid to rest. I'll persist beyond that. This is my, we might call this my earth suit. It's what allows me to enjoy movement and have being here in the earth. Uh, But Paul explained that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those who have received Christ. 
uh, life continues. And, and then there is that great day coming when there will be a reunion with a glorified body, our spirits and our glorified bodies reunited. And that, that'll be an extraordinary day. But the real you, the real me, is spiritual in nature. It's not this uh, body which is gradually decaying, growing older day by day. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Let's turn there, please. Um, and so these, these, uh, these distractions, uh, Jesus lists them as, the, uh, as worry. And, and I don't want to belabor the point. We discussed this at some length. Uh, last week, but can you, I, I'm sure you can see quickly how that worry, anxiety, can serve as a distraction in the life of the believer who is laboring to maintain a sense of the presence and reality of God in their lives as a governing reality in their lives. Suddenly, you are, you are met with a crisis on some level. Anxiety. rushes in, captures your attention. It's a very unpleasant experience, isn't it? How is the Christian to respond to those moments? How are we to respond to crisis? How are we to respond to problems? Paul wrote simply in Philippians 4, verse um, 6, be anxious for nothing. I think the... Um, the Living Bible stated it more succinctly. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. That's an important word. Everything. That means uh, no. you cannot experience an event in your life which is either beyond the reach of God or so seemingly small that it escapes his attention. From the smallest concern to the most urgent crisis, we are to deliver to all of those to God in prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplications, we let our requests be made known unto God. And we do it with thanksgiving. What does that suggest? That means we're not merely reporting our problems to God so that He can join us in our worries. It means we've cast our cares upon Him, knowing, Peter said, that He cares for us. Um, he has resolved to tend to our problems on our behalf. He's now at work. He is releasing into that moment into that circumstance his power his grace his favor he's now making the difference then paul explained when we are faithful to do that the peace of god which passes all understanding that means there isn't any there's not some logic um, that your peace is tethered to nothing may have apparently changed but because you've relaxed your grip on that, on that uh, problem, you have given it to God in prayer. And though 
It may not appear that anything has changed. Peace fills your heart. Because you know that God is at work. Almighty God is bearing His brawny arm of omnipotence on your behalf, working a miracle. And peace fills your heart. At least that's how the story goes. That may not always be our approach. Sometimes we retain the right to worry. And at that instant, out the sense of God's reality, the reality of His invisible kingdom, um, is supplanted by a, a, a sense of reality that is earthbound. That is purely physical. And which does not, which does not largely include God. Or largely does not include God. Covetousness, it's the same thing. The deceitfulness of riches. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not evil, but our attitudes regarding it can be evil. But if our trust is wholly in God, Paul explained that he's given us richly all these things to enjoy. But our attitudes regarding money do not allow covetousness to steal in and warp our approach to money. Jesus said you will either serve God or mammon. He said that about nothing else. He didn't, he didn't say you will either serve um, um, sexual immorality or God. He didn't say you will either serve yourself, you will either serve celebrity or God. He said you will either serve God or money which suggests that money alone enjoys the capacity to so mimic God that we would be willing to worship and trust in it. And it does, doesn't it? Money seems to offer a sense of well-being and security. Um, it, it, it seems to improve your status in life and upgrade among your fellows. At the end of the day, it can't deliver on any of those but it promises to. And so, if you are distracted by what wealth appears to promise, your trust will slowly uh, be turned toward it. God will become uh, less real and less apparent. The invisible kingdom of God will become less meaningful to you. They just won't have much bearing on your approach to life and the choices that you make throughout each day. And finally, the lust of other things. Just unrestrained desire. Because, I, I think it's Ephesians 4.22, describes these sorts of desires as lying desires. They, they promise fulfillment. They promise happiness. But they cannot deliver on them. But each time we allow a desire, which God grants us wonderful desires, and they serve, they serve His purposes in us, they serve our better interests, and they're pleasurable as long as they remain restrained, as long as they are permitted to function within the parameters God has defined. Food is wonderful. I enjoy food. I enjoy cooking food. I especially enjoy eating food. 
But that desire, if it becomes unrestrained, can begin working against me rather than for me. Every, essentially, every desire can work for you or against you. If you allow it to remain bounded and, and, and constrained, working within the parameters God has designed it to function within, it is a blessing and a pleasure. If you allow it to escape those bounds, then it becomes a curse, something harmful. Most of all, because it's something that we believe we will find such pleasure in that I will finally be happy, it occupies your attention and your devotion rather than God. So they are all distractions. Distractions from the reality that is God. Which brings us to uh, verse 20, Mark 4. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it. Now from the outset, we explain that the imperative in this parable is hearing. The subject, one of the subjects, the chief subjects is the seed or the word of God. And Satan comes immediately to steal away that word. Paul uh, said simply in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God at work in us is the agency. God has chosen with his spirit to transform our lives. And so Satan wishes to strip it away as swiftly as he can. And if he's unable to steal it from us, then he wishes to mitigate its influence and effect in our lives. But here, this man, this woman, they've heard the word, they've received it, and they accept it. Now, this is a, a unique word. Um... It is, uh, um, uh, it means to hold fast. It, it's uh, keteko in, in the Greek, and it means to hold fast. Now, have you heard that anywhere? 1 Corinthians 5.21, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. Now, holding fast suggests, um, uh, let's see, I'll take my notebook here. Don, try to take that from me. I dare you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Okay, uh, that wasn't in the script, Don. He was stealing. He was trying to steal this away. You naughty boy! He was trying to steal this away. So if I was going to retain it, I had to go ahead. Let's do that again, Don. Not quite so robustly. Um, I have to hold fast to it. Thank you. Um, Satan is coming. We'll, we'll uh, as, as we conclude next week, we'll, we'll review that warning, this implicit warning that, that uh, Jesus 
offers alongside the invitation to hear the word of God. But remember, Satan is coming immediately to do what? Steal away the word which has been sown in your heart. And so, I want to congratulate you, first of all, on coming here tonight to hear the word of God. Bravo. Now this caveat. <laughs> Satan's coming. He's coming. As certainly as you've heard the word, he is coming. And we are remiss as ministers, whether I'm sharing from the pulpit or you're sharing with a friend or a neighbor or someone God has carried across your path uh, to share the good news with, we are remiss if we fail to warn people of that um, approaching crisis. Remember, he comes through, number one, argument. Human reasoning to dissuade us from receiving the word. If we retain it, uh, an escalation is in order. And so he, he brings trouble and persecution. It may simply be social pressure to reject the word of God. What? You're a Christian. When did you suffer this brain injury? What do you mean you're going to church now? What, what's wrong with you? You're not going to become one of those knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, are you? Just social pressure. And if that doesn't work, cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, the escalation will continue. And so what are we required to do in the face of such, uh, such assaults? It's simple. James 4 verse 8, resist the submit yourself to God. You do that by hearing his word, receiving it. Resist the devil, and he will flee. How quickly? I don't know. I don't know. It seems some periods of testing can, can seem to be prolonged. But one thing is for certain. He will leave. He will flee. So we're hearing the word and we're holding fast to it. Turn with me to Luke 8, the same parable, uh, a slightly um, different explanation. I shouldn't say different. Uh, it provides an additional aspect. Luke, the 8th chapter. Verse 15, but the seed is in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word, say it with me, in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, 
this isn't honest in the traditional sense that we might interpret it. It really, in fact, it means noble, a good and a noble heart. Larry, what in the world does that mean? Well, turn with me, uh, if you would, to Acts, the 17th chapter. Acts chapter 17. How many of you want to be this good ground? Well, of course we all do. Jesus is providing for us a blueprint, a map, if you will. This is how we can intentionally and proactively become good ground. Acts 17, beginning with verse 10, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They came to hear with an open mind. With an open mind. Now, I want you to recall uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 2. I'll simply read it for you. Paul wrote, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. That's from the NIV. There is an incredible humility you and I must approach the Word of God with. Or we will so often be prepared to reject its intent and simple meaning out of hand. And that's a mistake. Listen, I'll tell you something. When any... When I hear anyone at any time undermining the means, the aims, or the scope of redemption. I grow very cautious about what they're saying. When anyone begins to tamper with the means, the aims or the scope of redemption, the yellow lights start flashing. I believed Jesus died for all. I believe the full scope and impact of redemption is as available to Christians today, 2,000 years after the birth of the church as they were then. I believe that redemption means total salvation for the complete man. And when someone begins suggesting otherwise, I'm going to be very, very cautious in my regard for what they're saying. I want to be like the Berean. I want to come with an open mind. But then... It's my duty, it's my obligation to return and review what they've said in light of Scripture. This is the metric I'm indexing what I hear against. Now, I'm, uh, I, I thank God for the creeds and the confession. But I'm indexing what I believe against the Word of God. And everywhere the creeds and confessions conform to the Word of God, I celebrate. But if there's some diversion, 
my, I, lo, I owe my loyalty to the Word of God. If the beliefs of men and women I admire and whose ministries feed me and mean so much to me, if what they say on some level at some time diverges from what God's Word says, my loyalty is to the Word of God. My beliefs are founded in Scripture. Not merely in what someone says about Scripture, but in what the Scripture is saying. I'm going to hold fast to that. But I am going to come with an open mind. That's what was so noble. That's what was so marvelous about the believers in Berea. They came with an open mind. Now remember, many of, of, of these, uh, they were going into the synagogues, so they were Jews. This message could be offensive to them, but they came with an open mind. They came ready to receive. I think we all have to acknowledge that what we know about God is imperfect and incomplete. There's so much more to learn. When I encounter a resource, or I, I discover God moving me along a certain path, and I'm encountering ideas I haven't heard before, I need to have an open mind. I can't imagine I know everything there is to know, and, and simply dismiss it out of hand. I live acutely aware of uh, the propensity of man to worship a God far more of uh, who is far more of their own making. They worship a God. God created us in His image and likeness and we often return the favor. And so we may discover that uh, what we think we know about God is in fact in contradiction to who God actually is. And my heart's cry is to know God as He really is, not simply as I've imagined Him to be. And so from time to time, I may hear a word that challenges my ideas. Am I simply going to dismiss that word because it doesn't comport with what I think I know. If I'm, if I'm wise, if I'm humble, no. I'm going to go to the Word of God. I'm going to index it against this metric, the Word of Truth. And if I discover that it is in, agree in agreement with the Word of God, then what, what am I obliged to do? Receive it. And hold fast to it. And if it doesn't comport with the Word of God, then I, I, I dismiss it. Gladly. Swiftly. I dismiss it. But I want to approach the Word of God with a good and a noble heart. I don't want to be so arrogant as to imagine I know everything as I ought to know it. Paul warns us against that. But approach the Word of God with humility and with a willingness to obey 
from the heart what I hear if I determine that it is in fact the word of truth. Uh, turn with me to James uh, chapter 4. Now, in fact, I tell you, let's, let's skip that. Let's, let's go ahead and close. We'll pick this up next week. I want you to look at this dramatic illustration in Mark, the fourth chapter, um, that, that um, very quickly underscores the reality of the truths that Jesus has been that he shared publicly and then privately explained to the disciples. It is an extraordinary <laughs> illustration that makes obvious the truth of this parable and it is realized in the most human of experiences. Challenge. Mark the fourth chapter. Um, let's go to uh, verse 35. On that day, when the evening came, he said to them, to the disciples, let us go to the other side. Now this is the same day. Leaving the crowd, they took him along uh, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Which is striking to me. There's a storm. Have you ever been in a small boat? When, there were, when it was just a bit choppy? This was a storm. A gale had blown up. These were surging waves that were actually cresting over the boat and filling it with water. And remember, most of these men were fishermen. They, they understood the sea. They wouldn't be easily panicked. They were all convinced they were about to die. And where is Jesus? He's sleeping. Sleeping in the boat. Now it's either been a very difficult day and he had a really large mug of chamomile tea before settling in the boat <laughs> or he was perfectly at peace. Why might Jesus have been at peace? Well, I want you to recall he described the journey before setting out and had already announced its outcome. Let us go over to the other side. That was the word of God concerning that matter. The disciples had heard that same word. But in the middle of a crisis, it meant nothing to them. What meant more to them than the word which Jesus had spoken was what the circumstances seemed to dictate about their reality. And so they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there's a gale blowing. Waves are crashing over the boat. So I'm imagining they're yelling this at the top of their voice. Hey! Hey! We're dying! Don't you care? And they're at their, they are at their wits end. They're convinced we're dying! We're dying! And you don't even care. Which... It's easy to mock them. But how many times, on some level, do we repeat this very 
same approach to Jesus in the middle of a problem. Oh, well, you may be walking around on streets of gold, but I could use a little down here. I know everything's fine up there, but there are a few challenges here. And I think I try to do the right thing. I try to honor you, but you just keep piling it on, piling it on. I don't understand. So and so, they don't go to church like I do. They're not faithful in their devotions like I am. They don't do good things like I'm always doing. And they seem fine. Don't you care? Don't you even care? People get angry with God. There is very little more foolish than getting angry with God. Because He's on your side. He's desperately in love with you. Who God is and His reality has simply slipped from you. You're no longer conscious of it. What you are conscious of is the world around you. Jesus was with them in the boat and it didn't matter to them. He was just another body to complain to. They didn't look to him as the answer. They were angry with him. Don't you care? Don't you even care? Jesus arose. He rebuked the winds, calmed the sea, and then he turned and he asked them these very two simple questions. Hush, be still, he said. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Two important questions to ask yourself when you are tempted to begin to worry. When you are tempted to allow your um, um, your attention to be distracted from the reality that is God and is His kingdom to something else, whether it's in the midst of a crisis or something, you suddenly, I have to pursue that. I need that. I want that. I have to have that in order to be happy. Keep your attention on the reality that is God, that is his kingdom, and you will hold fast to the word of God, no matter what's happening around you. But that is our great challenge. Now, what we're going, I want you to write this down, please, and I want you to, to uh, please read this week, if you have a chance, but before next Thursday, 1 Corinthians 2, chapters, or verses 6 through 16, and John the 14th chapter, verses 16 through 26. You didn't get that? It's 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, and John 14, 16 through 26. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's 1 Corinthians 2, Chapter, or excuse me, verses 6 through 16. And the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16 through 26. Because we're going to talk about the dynamics of hearing. We're not, this is not a purely intellectual process. 
In fact, it is primarily a spiritual process, this hearing. And, and uh, when we hear him speak, the um, willingness and the ability to hold fast to that word is quickened within us. It is not a human endeavor. Um, it, it is not a matter of willpower. Uh, and we'll explore that next week. It's very encouraging. But this week, I want you to simply understand these really are the two keys. Receiving and accepting, or receiving and holding fast to the word of truth. That is what constitutes good ground. That is what allows the word of God to bring forth fruit that remains in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, and I pray that as we... Um, Consider it <clears throat> as we mull it over over the next several days and weeks that you would give us understanding. That we would discover the living Jesus Christ in this word. Jesus, that you would make yourself known to us more fully and more completely as we meditate upon your word. Give us understanding, Lord. Cause it to come alive in us. To quicken us. In Jesus' name. Amen.